The talk you are about to hear is by a senior student at the Auckland Zen Centre. Konati Kotimana, Rawa Konati Arihi, Konati Ingarangi, Konati Hemani, Oku Iwi, Ko Clan Douglas, Rawa Ko Clan Donald, Oku Hapu. Ko Brigantine Te Waka, Otoku Tipuna, Captain James Mikuljohn. Ko Sally Mikuljohn, Toku Fire, Ko James Bartle, Toku Matua, Ko Hamish Douglas Mackenzie Bartle, Taku Ingoa. Noreira, Tena Koto, Tena Koto, Tena Tato Kato. So, uh, a number of weeks ago, Hanya collared me as I left the Zendo and asked me to give a coming to the path talk. Um, and my immediate response was surprise and I thought, am I on the path? <laughs> and I thought, perhaps there'd been some mistake. <laughs> but the conversation continued and she clearly had the right person. Or so she thought. And so I started thinking, well, I mean, what is the path? And then I started thinking, well, who's the person on the path? And um, I guess you can all imagine I didn't get to the bottom of really either of those questions. So I, I think uh, somewhat unfortunately, we're all just going to have to assume for the purposes of this talk that I'm on the path. Um, I'm not sure I can give you any assurance in that regard. Um, but in some senses, the, the path and the person on the path is kind of the central um, difficulty <laughs> I have in terms of coming to the path. And I suppose there's many ways you can understand who you are, and one, one is through the pepeha, which is why I started with that, which um, just outlines briefly my descent from Scottish, Irish, English and German uh, ancestry, um, travel to New Zealand uh, by Scottish boat builders who landed north of Auckland. And I suppose then the other part would be to tell you a bit of my life story, which I don't want to get too mired down in, but hopefully just as much as so you can understand uh, what coming to the path has been for me. But I think um, there's, for me, the attention between the path and in capital letters and 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 my path. 
I comforted myself um, while I was preparing this talk by giving it a subtitle, which was uh, Coming to the Path, Bad Advice from a Heretic. Um, and I lo actually looked into the word heresy um, and it actually comes from a Greek word uh, which means choice, the thing chosen. And it originally referred to the process of uh, Greek youth, I imagine fairly privileged Greek youth, um, looking at various philosophies and ways of living and choosing the one that they would subscribe to. And I thought, oh, okay, I am a heretic. Um, and I suspect um, most of the people in this room are as well. <laughs> um, I suspect very few of you were born into the Zen tradition, but have gone through some process of looking at your options and making a choice. And um, I've certainly done that. There are two things that have, have driven that for me. Um, and um, <laughs> one of those is mental illness. So I, like many people, suffer from depression. My particular flavour of depression used to be called dysthymia. It's called persistent depressive disorder now. Um, and it's the one that lasts for years and never really lets up. So it's sort of less dramatic than a major depressive order, but it's pretty relentless. And I think one of the, one of the things about that is that uh, with dysthymia, there's sort of like uh, there's like a clip at the top of happiness, like you never really quite get there. It's always just a little bit below. Um, and there have been periods too where I've had major depressive episodes on top of that as well. Um, which is really grim because you could think, okay, I can get through this and get back to just being mildly miserable. <laughs> so... Sitting has helped. That drives me back to sitting. I kind of have a choice between meditation and depression, so, you know, it's not, not a hard choice to make. <laughs> and it has helped a lot, and um, it, it really has gotten better over the years as I've got smarter with my mind and uh, more forgiving with my mind and kinder with my mind. Um, but that's certainly something that means I can never stay away from the cushion for too long. The um, other thing, I suppose, that draws me to practice is um, a desire, an obsession uh, from early, pretty early in my life to know what the meaning of life was, like to nail that. Um, and I was thinking about this and it, <laughs> it actually came as a young child, as a young child I remember hearing about midlife crises and determining that I would never have one. <laughs> Which I think is so weird. But um, yeah, that's, 
that's what happened. And so, you know, my understanding of that was that people who got to a certain point in their life and realised they put all their energy into the wrong thing. And I was like, I'm not doing that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to crack the meaning of life and then I'm going to live that life. Um, and I, in my, I suppose in my teens, I think I became quite rigid around that and decided that I wouldn't really kind of commit to anything until I had worked that out. And I, I don't really know if that was a genius move because it really did lead to a lot of aimlessness <laughs> and a fair bit of paralysis. Um, but on the other hand, I did, um, I, I also looked into uh, heaps of different traditions and, and ways of understanding the world. I wanted to try to get, I, I suppose I had a sense too that that was a, a, a question that would be uncovered through looking at religious thought or spiritual thought. And so I looked into a lot of different kinds of religious and spiritual thought. And what I wanted to try to do was kind of pull them all together into some sort of grand unifying theory. I also don't know if that was a genius move and probably I could have been talking to somebody about this and a bit of advice might have been helpful. But I, I did all of this, I kept all of this to myself I suppose and I don't know who the person would be that I would have uh, spoken to about it. Um, so I suppose, you know, out of childhood and into my early adulthood, I um, got into a lot of different spiritual traditions. I spent a lot of time um, practicing as a, as a Wiccan and I really in, enjoyed um, pag the, the pagan worldview. I really um, appreciated the view of the world itself as sacred, as not needing anything to be added to it, as not needing a whole complicated extra reality behind it, but just that, that's the divine, that rock. I had a couple of difficulties with with that though and, and one is that I got a little bit stuck because if everything was sacred then kind of also nothing really was so that was a bit of a problem I ran into there that I never quite resolved I'm not sure now if that was a major problem but I think the other difficulty was that there was really no clear practice there was no clear tradition that Western um, indigenous religion was pretty effectively wiped out um, by the Christian church. So it's, it's really hard to know, I suppose, in terms of that path, whether you're on it or not. Um, and I, I had a lot of great friends who were uh, interested in that same worldview. And, but there was so much difference in terms of what we did or, and how we did it. Um, and yeah, and I, I think too it, I, it wasn't clear how the, how, the, how the practices were going to 
achieve the things that we, we wanted to achieve. And possibly whether we were all aiming for the same thing. <laughs> so it was a very chaotic and anarchic um, time, I suppose. Um, very creative and a lot of fun. Um, but so I kind of kept shopping around and I came to um, Tibetan Buddhism eventually and I, I was really drawn to that, probably not least by the exoticism of it and the mysticism and the, the colour and the ritual. Um, but, I, but there was a practice there and I, I found that really useful. Um, and it and, and, and that and it worked, you know, it worked. The Tibetan focus on discursive um, meditation and, and inquiry until you get to a certain point and then sitting single pointedly with that is really it's very effective. It's very cool. Um, and it was while um, I was practicing there that I um, read a book, Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism by Chogyam Trungpa, which was basically written to people like me, um, <laughs> young Westerners shopping around <laughs> and gathering up everything they possibly could. Um, and, uh, it is, and it just has a very effective message, which is, you know, just, just make up your mind and stick with something <laughs> and follow through, follow through uh, with it. Well, that was kind of one of the main messages I took from that book. And so I thought, well, okay, I'm practicing Buddhism at the moment, so I'll stick with that one. It seems okay. So I um, decided to stick with that practice. I'd been, you know, reading broadly through all of this time and I suppose I'd, by now I'd read enough sort of post-modernism to realise that meaning was any you know any meaning of my life was going to be uh, created rather than um, uncovered. And I guess it was through reading um, the literature coming out of the Foundation for the Preservation of the Mahayana Tradition uh, and and my own contemplation that I sort of came to the conclusion that a meaningful life is is one where where one benefits others um, so I had kind of finally got my answer and to be honest it was a bit of an anticlimax <laughs> like I thought oh that's not even anything new <laughs> I've heard that before, and I realised, God, I could have really been getting on with something, couldn't I? I didn't really need to, to wait around for this, but all right. Okay, I know what it is, so it's time to get on with it now. And so I guess I had the question of what to do with that. Um, and I really thought about going into the, um, the Tibetan practice very deeply. I, I thought about um, becoming a monk for a while. Uh, I had no money, so um, there were financial issues there. And um, yeah, so I suppose in a sense, 
those are sort of some of the things that brought me to the path. And then I think we sort of come to a point where some things start kind of pushing me away from um, the path, maybe capital T, capital P path. And, and one of those was when I took refuge with the Tibetan tradition, which I did during a retreat uh, in Coromandel. And um, in preparation for taking refuge, we were given a booklet that outlined in detail, uh, you know, the uh, the refuge vows, including the the um, the principles of uh, moral discipline. And it was pretty clear from reading those that um, if you were going to be gay and take refuge you were going to have to be celibate. Um, which was interesting because, you know, I, I suppose I'd gotten into Tibetan Buddhism through a, a, through a Western community that was very liberal, and that had just sort of been, like, no one was bothered about that, but it was just never mentioned until it was there in black and white the evening before I'm taking refuge. Yeah with a Tibetan Geshe. And um, this, yeah, threw a bit of a spanner in the works. And I, you know, really sought some answers from the Geshe, but he'd retired for the evening and wasn't really interested in discussing it. Didn't really see it as important. Um, and none interceded and, and, and said, look, actually, this is important for Western people. They want to understand this. And he said, well, look, of course homosexuality is sexual misconduct. <laughs> so that was that. Um, you know, I suppose the thing is about taking refuge in a tradition is it's, it's a commitment to a spiritual practice, but you're also saying this spiritual practice, you know, if a practice is saying, look, you know, uh, practice this and you'll be X, Y, and Z, whatever, no one's going to ever say no to the things that Buddhism purportedly offers. But I guess what you're saying as well is, like, I think you're the people who can, who can do that. And I suppose I lost a bit more of my idealism that day because I just realised that each, each tradition obviously is situated within a culture and that those cultures bring with them their values and their human cultures. They're not um, <laughs> pure transcendent objects sitting sparkling in a spiritual space free from any kind of human thought, culture or, or distortion. Um, So there was that. I took refuge anyway. I just didn't um, vow not to engage in sexual misconduct, which is a bit weird. Um, yeah, considering the other things that I would consider <laughs> to be sexual misconduct that I have zero interest in doing. But there you go. But I suppose in some ways that, uh, I don't know, dampened my enthusiasm a little. 
sometime after that, for different reasons, I um, decided to uh, drop out of the arts sector and go back to university and, and study clinical psychology, which I did. Um, but you know, obviously, that decision was 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 driven by that idea that you know my, what would make my life meaningful would be helping others, and that's what I really wanted my life to be about. Um, interestingly, when I went to university and I studied the scientific method, I thought, "Shit, this is this is really something. This is this is great. I like this. This is really smart." Um, and I started to apply that to my own thinking. And as I did that, I found that I believed in a lot of things that just didn't really stand up to scrutiny. I found that I believed in a lot of things that I just didn't believe in anymore. And so I sort of <laughs> went from someone who really believed in a lot of um, I suppose, you know, as a, as a teenager in my 20s, a lot of things I would consider mystical now. Um, to someone who really believes in, in logic and the empirical method, <laughs> I, I just really think it's one of the greatest things we've come up with as humans. Like, not the greatest, not the only one. But, you know, I think for me, a lot of marvellous stuff has come out of that. And I think it's really powerful. But that radical shift was, was really painful. It was really disorienting. And I... Um, so I stopped practising for a while. Because I just didn't... Sitting didn't really make any sense. I probably sat every now and then just to kind of calm myself down. Um, but, you know, in terms of what the aims of that practice had been before, achieving a, a positive rebirth, um, escaping samsara, um, devotion to um, powerful deities, it just it, it just didn't just didn't sit right anymore. It didn't make any sense to me. I couldn't really do that. So there was a bit of a gap there. But depression, right? So I don't get away with not sitting. I have to sit. And so, um, actually, you know, what brought me here to the Zen Center was that I, I just needed to find some people who were sitting regularly. And I figured that Zen Buddhists would probably be sitting <laughs> regularly. And I'd read a little Zen, and I thought that, you know, probably, philosophically, it wasn't going to be too much of a of a bad fit, um, and I could probably just keep my beliefs to myself <laughs> and everything would be okay. And that strategy's worked pretty well up until today. <laughs>
but I guess I felt too that that mindfulness is not just a technique. You know, we. I, I, I'm a clinical psychologist now, and I see mindfulness being thrown around as a as a pure technique a lot, and I don't really think that that's all that it is. It's um. The technique only makes sense if it's it's situated within something whole. If you're clear about why you're doing it. And so I guess, you know, that's the other side, that's the tradition side. That's what we look to the tradition for, is to, to hold those values, to hold some kind of philosophical framework that's coherent, that's going to make sense, um, that lets our practice sit within it, because I still sort of um, oscillate between those between those tensions uh, between the tradition on one side and and then and then me and what I think and what what I believe. Um, and I'm very conscious that that's changed pretty radically already in the past. So I might not have everything 100% right yet. But. I suppose my practice needs to be uh, needs to be relevant to me, right? And I think you know that well the tradition is is containing and it's wise and it gives us methods and and then I find on the the other side is kind of is this a wild and spontaneous and energetic kind of self that's got to get in there too. And sometimes they sit together well, and sometimes there's a, a tension, you know. And, I, and for me, I suppose that shows itself usually as like an oscillation and my practice going, the frequency of my practice going up and down, you know. I might go through a period of sitting a lot. And then I might find that actually need to not sit for a bit. I need to think about these questions in other ways. But yeah, going too far in that direction is, gets a bit kind of shapeless and directionless and, and undisciplined. So, so that brings me back again, I suppose, to the tradition. And I suppose I see them in extremes as, as trying to find a balance between dogma and, um, and self-indulgence. 
You know? So if I'm too much into my own thing, I'm, I'm probably just going to be self-indulgent. I'm probably not going to be moving towards what really matters to me, developing the qualities that I um, want to see in the world, that we need in the world. But I find if I get too wrapped up in, 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 in trying to be a good Buddhist with a capital B, that it just feels dead and I get bound into it. And then what tends to happen is I kind of react to that and I'll kind of disappear from the center for a little while. And you won't see me for a little while. It's kind of because I've gotten too into it and it started to feel really fake. And I've got to kind of leave and get back in touch with kind of what what doesn't feel fake and then come back with that and I don't really I don't really understand that 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 push and that pull but it's just a bit of a, a dance I think with my own kind of personality but, but I think you know that what I think has helped helps me with that is is to have respect for the tradition on one side and to have respect for my my own intelligence my own wisdom uh, on the other so you know I I, I don't um, <laughs> or rather I've you know I value and appreciate all the aspects of, of the of the traditions that we engage in and I don't resent any of them they're the form that holds us and by doing those things we support each other in our practice and the more I do them the more meaningful they become to me um, maybe if I don't understand the purpose of doing them in the start um, they start I start to find a purpose after a while, or, or I start to see how that fits for me. Yeah, and, the, and then on the other hand is, is just to respect, you know, my own, <laughs> my own intelligence and my own wisdom, my own ability to know kind of what I need sometimes and not to, to freak out about that too much. So I think, you know, part of that tension too is about surrender and, and choice. So we're all here because we've, we've made choices to be here through thoughtfulness and weighing ideas. But at some point also we have to surrender to the practice got to kind of put those ideas aside and just be with the practice and just see if it if it works see what happens <laughs> um, yeah and I guess um, yeah and, and I guess the other the other kind of um, the other kind of tension I suppose is between the two the two cosmologies, you know, the, the Buddhist cosmology and um, my cosmology, which I suppose is a, a, a Western scientific one. Um, and I suppose, I think, you know, what I think about that is I think that 
we, we sometimes forget that um, the separation of um, religious and scientific scholarship is it's a pretty new idea and that actually um, you know the, those those old those ancient cosmologies they were the state of the art at the time they were the knowledge they were the way the world is um, So yeah, you know, I think there are there are aspects of the Buddhist cosmology that just don't they don't sit with me. I think there's sort of the, the Buddha grew up in a, a Hindu world and subscribed to that cosmology, and it, it's that's not mine. That's not how I see the world. I don't I don't think that that um, that historic person and I um, have the same understanding of what the world is and how it works. So that's difficult sometimes. That's a, it's a tension. I think it's really worthwhile because um, we we still have to work out how to live, right? Each of us. And um, you know that's not a that's not a scientific question. That's a that's a, a philosophical question. Or a psychological question, or a political question. And I suppose my perspective on that is that we've, you know, we've we've each got to do what we can to work that out, and to do our best at that. And so it helps to have a practice. It helps to to have a method that will help us generate the qualities we want to see in ourselves and in each other and in the world. So I think, you know, ultimately there's no, there's no conflict. But I, I think also as well, you, sometimes you don't know what's baby and what's bath water until you've drunk the whole thing. So um, I've read all the things on my paper now, <laughs> um, which was a lot faster than I thought it would be. So um, I hope I wasn't talking too fast. Um, are there any questions? Yeah. Oh, sorry. You go. You go. No, I was just, um, I'm just asking, just, um, what I was hearing is a really strong sense of being authentic. Is that what was really running through you around the tensions of, of the traditions and um, what was bouncing back when you felt you had to withdraw because you were feeling, I think the words were fake or something like that? Mm. Was, that what was, was that what I was hearing? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. I reckon that's not a bad, bad word. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think too. You know, something else that really drives me is theoretical consistency. <laughs> I 
like I really want everything to fit together. That's the intellectual side, and I suppose kind of the ethical side is, yeah, like you say, is, is authenticity, or, or maybe integrity, being of one piece, trying to, trying to just get it to all fit into one piece. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, um, you know, because I really am a rational empiricist and a bit of a sceptic, um, it's not always an easy fit. So are there any major learnings when you come back from a, a point of pulling back and then coming back? Is there something, is there, is there a consistency there in, in that? Um, Yeah, I'm not sure, because I think that's one process I don't really fully understand. You know, like I know... Um, yeah, I mean, I, there's, I suppose there's times when I go hard and there's times when, you know, meditation or, or sitting is, is not useful. And I mean, I certainly, I find, you know, with... Actually, it was something I want to kind of mention and normalise around around depression is that sitting is really is really helpful, can be really helpful, but it's also sometimes not the right thing to do. It's just it's sometimes it's just don't go. You don't. Yeah, sometimes going in there is not. It's not you don't want to go in there, and it's not the right thing to do. And it takes some real care to kind of work that out. I think, with depression anyway, like when should I be disciplined and when do I just go easy on myself? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and that uh, tension between having some discipline, having some form, but the risk of being unrelentingly tough on yourself, you know? Um, so yeah, that's a tricky one. But in terms of that sort of like pushing too hard and then being kind of repelled, (laughs) that I don't know. I think it's kind of like a, I think it's a personality level kind of dance. Kind of, oh no, too too close, too close, (laughs) back off, you know. Oh no, now too far away, come closer. So I I think it's that. I don't, I don't really get that one. Mm. Yeah. Um, I was wondering, I thought I remembered when you first came to the centre, I thought I remembered you telling me it had a bit to do with Vipassana as well, is that right? Did you? Oh, I've been on a few retreats, yeah, with Vipassana, mm. yeah. Have you got any reflections to make about that experience? Because that was quite meditation intensive. Yeah, so I'd been sitting, I mean, I actually learnt transcendental meditation at the age of 16. Oh. So I've been sitting on and off and on and off and on and off for a long, <laughs> for many years. Um, and um, I suppose Vipash, the Vipassana retreats were just, uh, were a nice way to, to, to do some retreats. And the only one I, the only meditation retreats I knew about. So I, you know, went on those, but I'd been sitting for a while. Yeah, but they are very intense. I, yeah, have people going to those to learn to meditate, and I feel for those people. That is a that is one heck of an introduction. Yeah, yeah.
<laughs> Sorry. That's how I first got introduced. Yeah, right. Wow. How was that? I was about 21 at the time. Oh, you're still here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't meditate for a long time, I think. Mm. But yeah. Um, and the other thing I was, I was thinking about, what you were saying about the, the, the mythical sort of background and what is in the cosmology, mm. um, for me what I found really helpful was thinking about it as kind of archetypal mythological stuff, like like when you read a fictional novel that mm. you get really into and it really resonates at some deep level. Mm. To me that's how I relate to it. But so it doesn't conf- conflict with scientific worldview for me because of that. It's, it just resonates at a different level. I don't know if it's any any value to you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah sure. I, I mean, I think there's sort there's there's different levels of that mm-hmm. out there, and I think there's probably very few of us who think that there's Mount Meru at the centre of the universe, and you know, in any kind of um, physical way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, yeah. You're a practicing psychologist, right? Um, is the practice some, somehow, like, does that link into your uh, psychology? Or? Um, yeah, so does the practice leak into my psychological yeah, so work? It's like, yeah, so it's because you. You have an idea about your mind because of this idea. You mm. have an idea of your mind because of, like, you studied it mm. in psychology. Mm. And so, how, how do these two things relate to each other? Wow, that's a great question. Um, it's a bit different to the first one. <laughs> the first one was easier. Um, so, those two understandings, how do they relate? I think the, I think that. The, there, there's levels of explanation, is how I understand it. You know, so I think that um, um, there's, you know, sitting as a an experiential process, a subjective process. It's about going into what it's like to be this here and now. Um, Western psychology, in some ways, kind of conflicts a bit avoided at the moment because Western psychology and Western science hasn't really been looking into the same questions that um, that contemplative practice has been for a while. It's starting now, and I think it's really cool. <laughs> some of the research is really interesting. Some of the theories around consciousness and identity and how they're created are really mind-blowing. Not and and I suppose the thing is they're not um, they're not in conflict, as I can see, with um, certainly with Zen concepts of the mind, which are you know pretty. I mean, it'd be tough to nail down what the Zen concept of the mind is, right? <laughs> so, but um, yeah, I mean, certainly. Um, Within those those studies that look into consciousness and identity, um, it's empty. You know, it's constituted of other processes. I mean, that's that's what they're trying to understand is the processes that constitute it. And most of the the scientists who are trying to understand consciousness talk about it as an illusion, mm-hmm. as something that you know 
we might that we think we have rather than as something that we have right? you need to investigate it as an idea you have you have an idea that you have consciousness <laughs> rather than investigating consciousness it, itself like that to them is the interesting question so and they throw some really interesting perspectives on it but um I mean, your subjective experience is always your subjective experience, right? Is, is that an answer to your question? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, I think that, the, that Western um, scientific research into those questions around uh, is, 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 is just starting. It's just starting. I reckon they'll crack it because I'm a believer, but um, <laughs> but they're far from having cracked it yet, and it's a very difficult problem. In terms of in terms of psychological practice, um, you know, mindfulness is so hot right now in in Western clinical practice, um, and it's very much, of course, part of how I think and how I operate and how I work with my own mind. So. Um, there are plenty of kind of coherent therapeutic frameworks for bringing all of those ideas together and for helping me to kind of explain that with people and work work with people so it's it's totally fits together great yeah and you mentioned about having this moment of seeing the meaning that's coming from helping people mm just wondered if you had anything to say about that in terms of the work you would, you've been doing for years, working with, in corrections, mm. and, and if, what, you, what your practice um, contributed to that difficult place to work. Mm. I mean, I guess the first thing I want to say that, about that is that, you know, when I realised that, you know, that what makes life meaningful is, is benefiting others, I also realised you didn't need to be doing that in any special way. You know, you didn't need a special job to do that. I, I went into psychology because the, the job that I was doing was really not working for me. And I needed to get out of that. Um... But, you know, I guess what I realised about that is that, you know, in, in any life you can just shift the intent, shift how you are with people, shift what you do or, you know, move where your kiwi, kiwi saver is, you know, <laughs> like there's, there's lots of things you can do in that way. Um, but in, in terms of... Um, the practice and how that supports working with people um, or working in difficult situations um, you, I think it's hard to say you know like it's hard to kind of go oh it's this um, but I, I think probably if it if there is something it, it's that moment by moment awareness of of what's going on for me in myself in my body and in my mind and, and whether I'm holding on to something or, or, or how I am with, with that person when I'm tensing up, when I'm resisting. <laughs> um, that's, yeah, that kind of, that awareness is really essential 
in that work, but also in terms of kind of knowing where you're at with it at the end of the day, knowing when you're kind of a bit full. And um, um, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a hard, that's a really hard one to answer, right? Because I, I, I'm guessing it does help. You can't separate it out from everything else. <laughs> it's kind of, yeah, yeah, I think it, I think it helps. I mean, I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of what I can point to, I suppose, is that moment by moment thing. That definitely goes on, and that's definitely from the practice. Any other questions? Oh, I have another answer to that question. <laughs> Which I think the other thing is the ability to kind of hold more than one idea at a time, to sit with um, paradox, to sit with um, not knowing, to sit with um, ideas that don't fit, to sit with um, stories that don't quite make sense. <laughs> um, and you know working with people who have offended there's a lot of denial there's a lot of lying there's a lot of um, difficulty facing up to what's happened and it's a long process to get to the bottom of even just the full story with someone and getting them to tell the full story and it takes a long time and you've got to to get through that you've got to sit with a story that has got inconsistencies in it for a long time and kind of just hold on to those and just wait for the when the time is right to bring those up and get them to match them but also as well when you're working with more than one person um, there's always more than one view about what's going on and it's always it's been always a big part of my work is bridging those views whether that's between cultural perspectives or whether it's just between um, different professional disciplines or whether it's between you know clients and and others victims versus perpetrators um, so being able to sit with um, that paradox is really yeah. is really useful Uh... -huh. 
The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.aucklandzen.org.nz.